All right, man. What's uh, what's the word intentional mean for you, Josh? It's it's being mindful of what you're doing, why you're doing it, while you're in the middle of doing it. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Alrighty, we are back for another episode. I appreciate you tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the economic and M&A update from last week. A lot of meat on that bone. Go check it out if you have not. That it leads us into today's episode who I have Josh Golden, who is going to be telling his story about how he started, grew, and then eventually sold his software development professional services firm. But before we get into a little bit more of that, just as a quick announcement is that we have released, if you did not catch last week, the Intentional Growth In-Person Bootcamp. That is in May at Rollins College in Orlando, Florida. Yep, not Minnesota. It's in Florida. Rollins College in Orlando on May 11th and 12th. That's a Thursday and Friday. It is $5,000 for the first ticket and then half off for additional tickets after that. It's a great way to spend two days with 20 other entrepreneurs and leaders who are trying to focus on growing the value of their business, viewing and running the company like a financial asset, clarifying their target equity valuation, the income they want along the way, how their leadership role should evolve the way, and the choices that they want to create Great time for partnerships to get aligned, ownership and leadership team members to get aligned. And if you have any questions, go to the website, arcona.io, go to the bootcamp page. We got the curriculum, we got the agenda, we got a bunch of videos. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. So Josh Golden, who's going to be on the show today. I met Josh five plus years ago at a Young Entrepreneurs Council YSC ski trip uh, on a chairlift. Josh is going to talk about that story. But why I was so excited to have him on the show is because when I met Josh, he was at this inflection point of what do I want to do with this business? He had uh, he had grown it, and then he's gone. He had gone through a couple partnership uh, buyouts, and had, the company had evolved, which he's going to be sharing this entire story. And he was trying to figure out what do I want to do next. And so over the last five years, I've watched Josh take very purposeful action towards a clearly identified outcome, but he also spent an insane amount of time clarifying what that outcome meant for him financially as well as intangibly. So the first and second principle of the intentional growth principles were like locked in and clear because you knew why the things that were unique to TableXI, also now known as TXI, were super unique and that would impact what he wanted long-term with the legacy of the business, the culture, and how that was going to align with the future buyer. But then what that meant for his financial targets, his timeline, and the options, and how an ESOP compares to a private equity firm, compares to a strategic buyer. And Josh walks through his his entire journey of starting, growing, and then exiting, and how he was making his decisions based on what was important to him. That is the key takeaway. Regardless of how you feel about the specific outcome that Josh got, it might be completely different than what you want. However, what is crucial to be uh, paying attention to is his level of clarifying his thought process and going through the decision making to keep him on track and actually go get the outcome that he wanted because it was clear. So the level of clarity was so 
awesome to be listening to. And I think that is the level of clarity that everybody deserves. And if you don't have it, go check out the boot camp. So I will let Josh Golden tell his story about starting, growing, and selling TXI to an ESOP that was just consummated on December 31st. So without further ado, here's Josh Golden. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Well, I didn't think I'd be sitting here for a while, but here we are, Josh. <laughs> it's been a while. I uh, We sat on a chairlift how many years ago? This is like five, six years ago, maybe. Is that where it starts? It sounds like an appropriate place to start the story. I mean, obviously, your story running the business at Table XI now, just XI, is that how you pronounce it now? Or is it? Well, actually, post rebrand, it's now TXI. Yeah, actually, TXI. Uh, Like I said, XI, I forgot the the first letter. (laughs) Right. Technology, experience, innovation, TXI. Obviously, your journey was uh, going before we met, but uh, do you want to give your interpretation of meeting me <laughs> so that way you can tell, you can actually tell the truth unless you want to hear the bullshit version that I'm going to spit off or what? Sure. Well, the, well, I skied on to a chairlift at the Young Entrepreneurs Council, uh, escaped to Powder Mountain, and I always make a point when I'm at an event like that or when I'm skiing, whatever, if I'm by myself or whatever hop a chair with someone as opposed to by yourself. Uh, and uh, being a high extrovert, I 
started up a conversation or you being a high extrovert started up a conversation. <laughs> I don't remember who else was on the chair. Um, the poor soul, about, right? <laughs> yeah, right in the middle of our conversation about this, that, or the other. But, you know, brought up that, you know, I had this business and that I was being fairly transparent about being unsure as to what the future of it was. We had started it without sort of clarity of what we were trying to do as, as young, young entrepreneurs. And uh, as we had become less young, young entrepreneurs, um, just became clear that it sort of needed a different definition of why it existed and where it was going and what the plan was. And, and so uh, it's kind of interesting because you're in a conference like that, where there's a lot of people who like purport to really have a clear idea of what they're doing, but it's often awful. And so I didn't, have a clear idea and, and you sort of feel bad. You're a services guy. Oh, that people look down on the services businesses. Oh, you're like, you, you, you don't, you're not aggressively growing as big as possible as you can sell it for a gazillion dollars. Like those are the tropes that sort of so dominant. And, you know, I was clearly and willing to sort of share my discomfort and uncertainty and confusion about where we were going, even in just the beginning of this, like five minute chairlift ride. And that we had been thinking about, ESOP as a potential sort of end destination, which of course was like instant catnip for Ryan Tansom, who started asking <laughs> questions about how did I, how did I, how did I come to that conclusion, and what thinking had I done, what analysis, and you know, and so that just became the beginning of a conversation that lasted several laps of skiing and chairlifts that day, and then you know more conversations and eventual some work together and. And then I would fast call forward it. a few more years, you know, an actual ESOP. So there you go. And I will call it dear friendship, man. I've, uh, yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll, as we jump in, I'll get, I'll let you tell a little bit of your backstory of what, uh, TXI does and kind of how we, how we got to where you are right now. But yeah, man, like when I met you and we were on that, on that chairlift, kind of what you're talking about, Josh, like. I think about like kind of the passion that I've had for what I'm doing and honestly, like your thoughts and your questions were the type of person that I want to work with. It's like, he's actually thinking through this shit. Like what a concept. And I was like, Oh my God, like he's actually putting weight on having choices and what those mean to him. And it's just different than like you said, like the other kind of arbitrary goals that people have. And I found that very interesting. And since the years that we know each other, I know that your brain, I, I've said to people, like, I think Josh's brain is actually more noisy upstairs than mine. I feel like all the things and all the questions of the macro world, the micro world. And uh, I just have found it very enjoyable, like listening to your thinking out loud and being a, a small, playing a small part into kind of the shuffling of the direction that you've gone. <laughs> Yes, my wife would tell you it's 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 not necessarily a safe place to be within radiation <laughs> distance of my neuroses. So uh, you make you sort of wonder about everything. What's real? What? Why? Why are we on Earth? I I, I found that I I find myself with the young kids. We've both got young kids. Mine are five and three, and the older one is uh, showing unfortunately a deep number of similarities to his father. And so he'll ask questions like kid questions and I'll be like trying to answer them as authentically as possible. Oh, One time he's asking, so why are you, I was like, Sam, you can't walk on, on the, uh, on the grass. He's like, why? It's like, well, that's someone's, someone's lawn. It's like, well, why can I walk here? So well, that's the sidewalk. That's public property. 
So the lawn's private property. It's like, what are you talking about? And then I find myself and trying here to explain <laughs> like property rights to a, you know, like Western, like, you know, so you own the land in, a, in an ever so smaller cone all the way to the core of the earth. You know, here we are, apes that have been on this planet for 10,000 years, and we think we own land. Um, oh. Try to explain that to a child. It's like, <laughs> the more you say it, the more it sounds completely ridiculous, like the vast majority of the stuff we talk about. So uh, uh, it doesn't bear, it, it doesn't survive real scrutiny. So there you go. But, but uh, like, as I, I will, I will spare the listeners the story I had my, with my daughters on Friday because they asked about something on a map, and then I went all the way down. <laughs> into like capitalism and stuff. Uh, yeah. It's like, just, why do the names of the countries in Africa keep changing, Daddy? Yeah. It's like, uh, sit like, down, sit down, son. Well, for four yeah, hours. We gotta, we so, gotta, we're going to be a while. Uh, so that's giving people, like, in the middle of all the sarcasm and humor and all the swirling around of all that, that's pretty much the origin of the chairlift story. So let, let's, let, let's give everybody a little bit of a backdrop, Josh. Like, where did TXI come from? How did you, you know, kind of the whole, how did you become an entrepreneur? And like, why did that journey, like, why did you gravitate towards that? And kind of what did, where were you guys at by the time you got to where we met? Yeah. So the, the long story, slightly less long uh, version of all this is, you know, I was raised in a small city in Canada. My parents are both uh, intellectuals. My dad's a musician, plays in a symphony. My mom's a psychotherapist who's now a management psychologist, but that's another story for another day. She's been on the show. Um, Gail, I will put Gail's, yeah, we'll put her uh, Gail, link Gail in the show Golden. notes. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, um, grew up in a very intellectually charged, rich household. Not a lot of business people, a lot of academics, lawyers, musicians, etc. Um, so ideas and thoughts, really big sort of part of our upbringing, like talking about issues, talking, you know, went to intellectually charged schools throughout elementary school, high school, and university at Northwestern, and was just always really interested in, like, in sort of getting to a, a, a level deeper. On the flip side, I was also really interested in selling stuff. Um, when I was nine years old, I would bake... Uh, Challah bread for the Jewish Sabbath uh, in my parents' oven and ride my 20-inch BMX bike around the neighborhood <laughs> and selling it to the Jewish neighbors. <laughs> um, eventually experienced some uh, some challenges associated with trying to scale too rapidly, and thus was the end of my first business. Um, learned all sorts of things. Uh, Where was the breaking point way. in a bed bread baking business? It turns out you can't do a quadruple batch of my grandmother's favorite challah <laughs> recipe in a home oven in one, at once it just you need larger vessels for uh for stirring stuff and it just became you know my parents came down you know in the morning on some sunday and there i was like covered in flour and <laughs> struggling and they were just like okay this has been fun but, but it's no. time to move on you know from there you know as i said like i worked you know had jobs etc and so forth um you know, my first job for an outsider was selling bikes in a bike shop where I just started showing up at the bike shop when I was 13, loved the bikes, learned everything about the bikes, started selling bikes until they to customers in the store until they agreed to pay me to sell <laughs> bikes for them. So I literally worked, worked my way in there and, uh, you know, went off to school, not really knowing what I wanted to study, bounced around through a couple different programs. And ultimately, um, it was a very exciting time. It was dot-com one. We, uh, I started working in the fall of my sophomore year for a venture-backed startup called ourhouse.com, which had raised $125 million of VC to sell the ACE hardware product catalog online. 
um, seemingly at a loss trying to make it up on volume. We all know where this story goes, um, but incredible pedigreed entrepreneurs involved in that, still friends with a number of the founders and people from that business to this day. One of those guys went on to be the chief marketing officer of Facebook for a long time, like big heavy hitter types involved in this thing, learned a lot. While I was working there, I sort of had this idea for my own startup, you know, decided that I could do two of three things, full-time school, my startup and working at our house. Our house was fun and it paid the bills in a way that most kids my age weren't able to pay the bills. Uh, you know, my own startup seemed patterned and excited and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with school. So I said, well, let's put school on hold. And, you know, thank, thank my parents for being willing to um, sort of be accepting of the idea that I was going to leave school. We, we are, we're a family that goes to school for a long time. I was going to say versus PhD, like I was the first but, one versus like, right. right? Like you, you're yeah. like, that was out right. of the norm. For sure. Right, exactly. And so like to, to to not finish my undergrad degree or at least take a pause on it for that moment in time was a big deal. But my parents really didn't miss a, a beat. They, I think, also just sort of knew that I had this, I was going to do what I was going to do. And so they could either be supportive and helpful or I would do it anyway with less support and help. So um, Reference Josh uh, covered in flour, right? <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Um, and so there we go to um, start our own startup. It turned out not to be a great idea. We raised a bit of money. We spent more and ultimately failed that. I sort of got my first experience trying to raise capital and manager invest, manage investors, which is a very challenging process that I do Were not enjoy. Lower 20s? Then, I, was, I was 19 when I started that business. Wow. And then yeah, um, it failed by the time I was 21. Um, somewhere in there, we I, I tried to take a job again and you know went to go work for this investor-backed startup as sort of a general IT internal sort of software problem business consultant uh, in a small startup, four o'clock on the first day, I was of my job there. A bunch of guys in suits showed up, and it turned out that they were private security and lawyers because the investors were firing the CEO, and they had everybody on the roster of who should be there. Like, wait, who are you? And I'm like, I knew. And they're like, You don't work here. You never worked here. Get out of here. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, Straight out of a movie. <laughs> Yeah, so we spent you you are you are not here for that day. I'm sure employment laws were violated there. Um, I should have. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, the we spent some time. My friend who had brought me in there, uh, trying to organize some group of investors to buy that asset because we thought it was an interesting asset. But once again, it was like beating our head against trying to get the money. The people who had the money didn't understand the opportunity. The people who understand the opportunity didn't have the money. There was this misalignment of capital and intention and, mm. and, and desire and and skill and. Uh, we just ultimately, it, it blew up in the launch pad. So I always say I started and failed and I failed to start my first and second companies. And as a reaction to that, we just decided, well, well what we loved doing at our house, which is where I met my, my the original, original co-founder of TXI was like this, like marketing analytics work, um, figuring out what was actually going on uh, through the lens of data and, you know, customer pathing. This is all before Google analytics and stuff mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And so we started to start, where was your head table at, XI. Josh? Like, like, we're, we're like, you know, before you, well, as you're starting table XI, like from the, from the first two kind of, uh, I mean, how did you word it? Start or start up to fail and fail to start like those two, like, yeah. what did you, how did that change your decision-making what you're solving for when you got to the TXI inception? Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting point. I, I was, I was going to get right to, which is um, this, uh, my naive you know, 21 year old brain connected the dots between the started and failed and failed to start as, Hey, it's really hard to do stuff with other people's money. What can we do with our own money? 
So how do we start a company that doesn't that's not capital intensive where we can control our own destiny right from the get-go? Mm. Um, and that was the story. We we ultimately sold the first contract for twenty four hundred dollars to a client that is still one of TXI's largest clients. No way. Um, we did we did like an audit of their marketing analytic systems. We got in the door because of a guy who had been a customer for the first business, not the second one, but he had been uh, Jim Foley. Shout out to that guy. He was a mentor and a friend who opened after we had failed spectacularly to deliver what we promised him uh, in the first business. He's like, I'll let you actually go and see my real business. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we sold an audit and that funded like registering a domain name and setting up email and that stuff, like almost no capital into the business at the beginning. It was just, you know, total bootstrap. My business partner what your was folks very risk averse. Like on your third try, well, we when like, you... <laughs> we, I think we had all tacitly agreed that if I couldn't make it work the third time, I should probably seek more education. It, it, contemporaneously to this, I actually had a, I had a serious girlfriend in high school and shortly after, or in, in college and certain shortly after college. And her father was a, a managing partner, a big, huge, powerful executive at Ernst and Young. And he was not a huge fan of my resume at that point of uh, wearing an earring, riding a motorcycle, um, being a dropout of college, being an entrepreneur and um, being in a relationship with his daughter. Um, and, you know, he sort of just, and, uh, you know, well, there was some tough love that was actually quite useful. He eventually just said, look, Josh, you're, you're adrift here. This is between two and three before starting TXI. It's like you, you've started TXI, but it hasn't gone anywhere yet. You're, you, 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 this is the time to finish your degree. Otherwise, you're going to spend the rest of your life professionally answering the question of why you don't have a degree. So he actually convinced me to transfer and enroll in full-time coursework at University of Chicago, which, of course, right after classes started, Dixon came back from that audit and said, Okay, you know, we did. You did your audit. We want to green light the first hundred thousand dollars of work, and I was just like, "Oh dear." Okay, well, <laughs> I'm trying to do an economics degree at University of Chicago in two years, so I, I supply demand. Someone program. has demand, and they're willing yeah. to give me a hundred grand. So, exactly. So it was like, thank goodness for BlackBerry operating well in a um, in a low sell environment. I'd sit in the back of class, marginally paying attention, typing emails to customers <laughs> on my BlackBerry. I figured out the absolute minimum amount of work you could do to get a University of Chicago economics degree. They, you, they, you could pass fail one class in your major. So I passed failed one class in my major. You, you know, I ended up doing well on paper in school. But if you actually showed what classes I took with what professors, you would know that this was a very savvy attempt to uh, get the degree and, and whatnot. And it's actually a bummer because I'm, I'm super interested in all the stuff that we were studying, but entrepreneurship was more exciting. And, and so... Ultimately, when I got to the end of my degree, there was enough going on at TXI. We were a couple years in where I was like, well, all of my friends are interviewing for investment banking analyst jobs or, you know, going to work at Accenture or blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, there's enough here to keep going. Um, and so at the time, University of Chicago had this Was it just you? Cool was, it, was, was your co-founder, Matt? Was it? Because it was... was no, it the co-founder is a guy named Paul Moran. Um, okay. Shout out to Paul. Uh, couldn't have done it without him. Um, uh, he was, uh, sort of a, uh, professional generation older than me had been my boss at ourhouse.com, a mentor. And he, uh, you know, he and I started the business initially and, and, and spent the first few years. We hired Matt was the first employee. And then, um, from there forward, we hired another person and, uh, my you know, old friend from, from, uh, from, from Ontario who, who joined us. And so there was a sort of a part, Paul was working part-time 
Matt was working part-time. I was sort of working full-time, but also going to school full-time. And Lucas was working full-time and we were doing stuff and it was progressing. And so I was like, well, maybe I actually can do this. The third time is a charm. Because my view was if I couldn't make TXI work, it was time to go work for someone else, get some real experience, you know, go to the school of hard or not a different kind of the school of hard knocks. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, you know, what do they say? Like, you know, you're, you, um, it's, it's, there's just, there's no. It's what they always say for family way. business. Go work for somewhere else before you come into yeah. the family business or whatever right. that kind of shit is. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, long story, you know, sort of continuing, I, I ultimately applied for a backup plan. Um, Chicago had this program for high potential undergrads to apply to go to B school, the non-binding three-year option to return to go to the, one of the best B schools in the world. Mm. So I was like, well, this gives me a safety net. I'll try this entrepreneurship thing for, for real. I'll go all in it one more time and see what happens. And and it was, it was kind of fascinating because the business continued to grow. We continued to grow revenue every year. We maintained profitability. And the, we're sort of off the races. And, and the second time they called me, so are you matriculating this fall? I was, I'd tell them no. And they had just been rated the best business school in the world. And it was kind of like by one of the various bullshit rankings. And, um, and it was, <laughs> but it was, it was kind of a, a, a fun moment of pride to be like, okay, we're going to remove the net now and, and go forward here. Um, there's cool. no way back, you know, somewhere in and around that time, you know, my business partner and I ultimately didn't have the same vision for where to take the business or who was delivering what value. And we managed to negotiate. Like, I don't want to get too far deep into the details of, of the founder drama associated with a 24 year old uh, or 25 or 26 hour old was at the time. Um, and you know, the hubris of, of, of what I, the way I saw the world or, or whatever. Um, on the flip side, like it was clear, like just difference of risk tolerance, difference Mm -hmm. of vision, um, difference of life stage. It was just, sort of, and I think we actually handled it much more professionally and uh, maturely than the majority of people do. It wasn't adolescent. It, we tried really hard uh, in, you know, in, I remember sort of, sort of cute as conversations about like, where you want to go this way. I want to go this way. Or Matt is contributing this value. You're contributing this value. I'm contributing this value. Like, how are we going to, you know, the capital table doesn't make, doesn't align with how we would structure it if we we're structuring it now. And we're still early enough that we should fix this if we're going to keep going. And like most people don't like, don't just didn't agree with our perception, but the dominant perception was the, the, the team at large. So we ultimately, we were advised by a wise business lawyer to just say, look, stop spending all the energy trying to make this relationship work, flip it around, spend the energy on separating the relationship and mm. using the, work you would have spent doing this to create value in the business so you can pay the guy for his piece and move on. Because if this is happening now, don't mm-hmm. add kids to this relationship, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, good way to put it. Uh, yeah. So, so it was very wise counsel and, uh, and all those, uh, you know, again, Mark Samani gave us great advice and, and, uh, and not allowed us to sort of uh, part ways. And I hope that if Paul hears this episode, he'll, recognize that, you know, there's still no hard feelings. And I, you know, have the utmost respect for his role in our lives together. And I wouldn't have done what I did without him. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, like, I think we ultimately realigned the business in the way we needed to. And we were able to then sort of start. And at that point, like it was a milieu of 
people about the same age with very similar value systems, downtown Chicago, urban foodies wanting to like, you know, sort of live and work together and grow something. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, your quintessential sort of tech monoculture uh, at the time. And, you know, there was still a lot, a lot, a lot of learning to happen, but uh, what were, we were at What were some of the services that you guys were evolving into? Like, what were the services you were doing? Yeah. And how were you, how were you mirroring that up as a service business with the culture of the people? Cause I think there's right. a very unique balance. Like when I, when I observe professional services companies, it's like their, their services are, you know, supplying a need or filling a need. And then there's the people, but they're like keeping those people integrated in the fabric together in order to deliver what you want. It's kind of a, it's a multidimensional thing that you have to hold together. Yeah. And it's a deep, it's an evolving process. Like, again, I'm not a student of the research about organization design and development, but at different stages of an entity's life cycle, it's going to be very different. You know, uh, the tacit sort of like implicit alignment you get when you're first launching services. Like initially we were doing data analytics and telling people what to do, but not being willing to do it. And then of course the inevitable question of, well, can you help us implement these changes you're recommending? And I said, well, no, 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 we're an analytics and advice company, not a implementation company. And one day like, it looked like our pipeline was kind of lean. And, and instead of, holding the line and becoming like one of the earliest like data science consulting companies, we probably would have had a hundred, like two orders of magnitude more success. Um, we were like, well, I guess we should just help you implement this and overnight commoditized ourselves into just another web development shop, which we were for quite some time. Um, we always had this like really business savvy business level engagement with our customer where we would help them figure out what to do and then do it and provide a lot of advice, both solicited and unsolicited. Um, you can ask some of our early clients about some of the battles <laughs> we had about what to do. Um, but long story short, we found the right clients who wanted that kind of push-pull. We were digital natives. Most of our clients were not digital natives. Uh, we were mostly in that micro-generation between Gen X and the millennial generation where you had an analog childhood and a digital adolescence and adulthood. And so we had complete fluency in both the worlds of our customers and the worlds of our technological uh, employees. And it, put it, like that. It, it allowed us to, um, and that's basically been my value add for much of my career is being able to speak nerd and business fluently and be able to speak analog and digital fluently. Like it's a, it's a real skill set, and, and that caused us to cluster. So you want to talk about alignment between services and the demographic of the people, the culture, like mm -hmm. we, everybody who worked the company was like between 1979 and 1982 for quite a while hmm. for birth year, 1983. It was, it was this real tight cluster of people sort of going through life together. Now, gradually over time, thank goodness it diversified across any dimension of diversity that you want, because as I said, it was sort of one of those tech monocultures of the early 2000s. And mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. all sorts of, of things that I wish I'd had the sort of lens of, of now to sort of see what was going on. Like it, there was definitely a bro culture of, uh, of some real uh, d dimension and, and, and it wasn't intentional. It was just like, and so we thought we were really human really beings attracted culture. to other people doing things together. Right. And it was a quintessential culture fit when, 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 when building a culture was defined by this idea of culture fit. Now we talk about culture ad or other sorts of like diverse perspective. We know that teams of people, wide backgrounds, outperformed teams, of homogenous backgrounds, 
but you know, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, especially from that org design and growth story perspective, we didn't have any investors who were asking us hard questions. Uh, we didn't have a board that was holding us accountable. We were just living together, working together. Some of us were roommates. One guy lived at the office for a while. Like it was, <laughs> it was absolutely what you'd imagine a tech services company in 2005 to be like, but you know, over time we gradually broadened our scope of services and various different, very key moments. We took on some of the most challenging. So we were already dealing with this divide between like business and technology so there's that kind of people often talk past each other, but design and development, like designers and software developers mm-hmm. in our industry often have a hard time aligning around a, a why and a direction forward and fully valuing each other's work. And so we we spent the, you know, the next you know, 15, 20 years sorting through the things that make this kind of work really hard to do. Cultural issues across different functions, color, you know, different cultures between designers, developers, project managers, salespeople, um, business leaders, figuring out all these kinds of questions around, you know, do we do, how do we do design? Is it, is it design thinking led? Is it, do we do more generative design? How do we piece this together and coming up with a methodology that's scalable, that allows people to, to learn on the job and develop their skill sets, build their human capital, deliver excellent value to the clients, um, have a good time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in, in an ideal scenario, do something good for the world on top of all that. And, and so that's gradually been distilled into a much more clear market-facing statement around what the firm does. Would you mind, would you mind giving that to us right now? Cause again, sure. cause I think it's you're kind of given like the, a little bit of a gl- glimpse, glimpse of like what it is now. Cause you guys, and that's part of what, when we get to kind of how you did the transaction of what you wanted to keep together from what I got from what I gather. Right. Yeah. Well, because we've done all this work to try to get people with very different approaches to problem solving, to work together, to build uh, unified teams that develop unified solutions for our clients. So now we define, like we described the, 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 the company as an innovation product, innovation consulting company. So our clients typically come to us with some sense that there is an opportunity to deliver additional value to their existing customers or to build a product for new customers. And we help them to monetize this opportunity to build a, like a, 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 a user, like to validate that users actually want a thing, to validate there's a business model around it, um, and to uh, then go and actually execute it from soup to nuts. So you can imagine taking a lot of the work that like IDEO does with a little bit of the work that McKinsey does with a lot of the work that a ThoughtWorks or, mm-hmm. you know, a top tier engineering uh, consulting services firm does, and you bolt them together under one roof. There's outfits at scale that, that are larger than us, like Ken and Carta, or, you know, we've known them for a long time, who are big, big versions of us with thousands and thousands of employees across the globe. You know, we've got 75 or so. Um, so we're still sort of what is that what the numbers up to you now is 75? Yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, That's awesome, man. Yeah, and and it's uh, and and so again, like our our you know our clients range from huge Fortune fifty companies to concept stage startups with a lot of work in the mid market to the small cap mm-hmm. publicly traded world where they often don't have an innovation department or if they do, it doesn't work that well. We know that innovation from within a big firm is really hard to do for a lot of reasons, and um, and and you know that's been a really steady, stable growth opportunity. Um, that's redefined every five years by the technological change. 
And you guys have a unique way of of keeping all those together as part of your overall like offering that you're working with someone too. And, I, and just for the listeners, I could kind of because and for, and correct me if I'm wrong at any point in time here is like it's it's the advice like you're saying. So like there's so many shops where it's like oh someone says they want something they're willing to write a check for two hundred grand and they're gonna build it regardless if they care if it works regardless of they, whether they care whether the the design is elegant and human based you know regardless whether it's good or not and like that's the opposite of what I, the, what you guys do. And, but it's like the kind of overall, like going to validate everything all the way through and truly kind of be that partner. Plus in this diverse set of team, here's first of all, am I on track? Kind of like how I'm. Yeah. Like I, I think the this? simplest way for the listeners to understand is there's two parts of our business. One is figuring out what thing to build. And then the second part of our business is building the thing right. Um, <laughs> which a lot of people don't do either of those well, well, well let alone focus entirely on the build the right thing or build the thing right if you think about like <laughs> the agile software manifesto and thoughtworks the whole genesis was like let's change the way people build software that's how do we build the thing uh-huh. and then ido changed the world where they're like how do we like how do we determine what the true thing that the customer wants that's unspoken unstated need through research through design thinking etc so that's how to build the right thing but getting those two to work together is a really hard thing to do. And we like to think, and I think we have a lot of proof that we've managed to do it at scale for a long time. Um, well, well, this is, this is part of my clarifying question, Josh, because, and I, and I don't, I hope I'm not projecting cause I see a little bit of my circumstances in yours. So this is a kind of a selfish question too, of like, cause like I've been trying to build kind of the, those two components for what I'm doing. Right. I want to, I want to make sure people have the right goal and then I want to help them achieve that goal. Right. Like, but if they, right. like, I don't want to help them figure out the goal and then have them go somewhere else, but I don't want to help them right. if they don't know where they're going. And it's right. been so freaking hard, dude, like, <laughs> to your point. And, <laughs> and I feel because I, res- I, I, again, I feel like I've always related to your, your brain of how it's thinking about the macro picture and how much care you have about the things that you want to change the impact that you want to make. How did you, balance like doing what was right versus the check while you're growing and the trade-offs of staying true to what you're trying to do but also maintaining scale and growth and like it's just that balance of the fiscal responsibility with what you're trying to do and the value exchange that everybody's getting is the question clear yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense again there's no the, the 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 truth of like being successful in in the context of a values-driven organization is you cannot be fully dogmatic about anything. Um, so the pragmatism dominates dogma. If we don't continue to exist, then we can't do good in the future. Therefore, we need to continue to exist. However, we are not going to get fat doing stuff that we are not proud of. We are going to stay lean and eat the minimum amount of not great stuff to make sure that we're up around and we have availability when when we have the opportunity to do the great stuff, whether it's the exact right project scope and scale, or it's the exact right client whose super values align to what we're trying to do. And so, I think it's 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 a taking a pragmatic approach. And we, we you know we're still working through some challenging questions around what who do we say yes to with enthusiasm? Who do we say yes to with uh, some uh, some concern? Who do we say? yes to, but they need to meet these specific requirements and who do we say no to? Um, Mm -hmm. Because we are fortunate enough that we often have more work than we're currently staffed to handle. And we, you know, we're always looking for more and better work, but it, you know, we become very clear on what doesn't align. And so Mm -hmm. we can 
whether it's has to do with the value system or the industry or the kind of project or the tech stack, right? We can fail stuff now much more efficiently, but like, there's no doubt that there's times we've had to just do a thing the way the customer wants. I actually used to amusingly describe this and this, this long predates the modern, much more sophisticated approaches that the companies developed uh, after I stepped down as CEO um, about how to score and think about uh, the value of work. But I, but when someone, when a client was advising us to do something we didn't think made sense, there's an old tradition within the Jewish culture. When someone decides they want to become Jewish, they go to the rabbi and say, I want to become Jewish. And the rabbi says, no, get out of here. <laughs> they come back a second time. I really, no, seriously, rabbi, I'm serious. No, get out of here. You don't want to do this. And only on the third time, the third ask, do does the rabbi embrace the person's desire and sort of let them in to study and then still a uh, historically a very challenging and, and inclusive process. But, and this is a bit apocryphal. I'm not sure that this really happens in reality, but it is an old story. And so we used to say, okay, we'll tell them no forcibly twice. And if they keep saying, we want to do this, it's our money. Who are we to say no at that point? Um, mm-hmm. I think we're more sophisticated about it now, but it is, uh, it, it goes back to like, and then you can go back and say to the staff, why did you read this project? Well, we told them to do this other thing. We told them, uh, and 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 right. and it's a, it's a balancing act because you have when you don't have a big pot of money, when you don't have massive margins, when you don't have recurring revenue, like sometimes you just have to do the project that fits. On the flip side, we at one point fired a client that accounted for almost fifty percent of our revenue. No shit. Um, when was that? Uh, Two thousand thirteen. I think it was, wow. but I really don't want to get into too many details around this one because it's private. But uh, the long story short is that uh, ultimately uh, we had a client, it was a big client and we did a lot of work together. We really liked each other, but they were having, they were, they were struggling to uh, align on what to do next. And we really didn't want to keep doing it the same way. And it was, it had sort of just become a bit of a toxic mm-hmm. um, stalemate uh, where instead of being like, you know, uh, collaborative and we're, we're marching together. We were sort of in a bit of a, of a, we're, we're both screwed without the other one situation. And so mm-hmm. we ultimately decided to say, look, guys, we just, we, we gave them an ultimatum. You need to move forward with this new path or we can't support you. How, how, uh, and so, how uh, nerve wracking was that decision? It was, it was nerve wracking. Like we had a good pipeline and some other work and stuff, but there was a couple of lean years that would have been much more profitable that followed that mm-hmm. had we, stuck with it so you know i don't want to over toot our horn like for doing that like there's probably other clients where we should have parted ways sooner than we did and maybe even in that situation we could have been more could have been more forceful or more thoughtful or more uh true to our own value system but we have done we have definitely put our money where our mouth is when it comes to um the value system uh that brings me to josh a question on um over, like I'm curious how that syncs up with that that timeline is like you brought in other employees into the fold on the cap table over time and just kind of mm-hmm. curious and your I'm going to preface it this what I what I normally see because I, I I feel like the answer that you're going to give is probably not what I normally see because we didn't get into this level of detail but it's like usually people it's like I have a painful operational experience I don't want to deal with this anymore I want to give someone some equity so hopefully they take away that pain right. Like they kind of just happens over time. I'm kind of curious, like who were the people? How did you, how was the, how, what was the decision making lens? And maybe it probably evolved over time, but 
it's a big deal at a services company too. And you've always said that to me since the day we met is like the cap table is this different thing in a services company than some other companies for the way that the organization is run. So I'm just kind of curious in your overall thoughts on kind of the, the, the situation. Yeah. Like this is a topic in and of itself. Uh, you know, I think that fundamentally there's sort of two kinds of people who start companies, ones who think they should have it all and ones who want to give it all away. And, and neither of these are the correct answer to the allocation of early stage equity. If you keep it all, you better be prepared to pay everybody a market salary because if you're asking them to take equity risk for no upside, that's ridiculous. On the flip side, you can also be an IR more to the latter of like, oh, you know, just, just give it away. Like, And those same wise lawyers who advised me to part company with my partner where we weren't working together or also among the cadre of people being like, don't give it all away because it's very hard and expensive to get it back when you need it in the future. So early on, you know, we, I started the business 50, 50 with the partner. When I bought his shares out, we recapped the business. Um, you know, I borrowed money personally to, to do that, paid him off in one lump sum because he didn't want any ongoing exposure to the business going forward. Understandably, like, you know, it was tens at that point. And that allowed me to sort of recap it where the business sort of looked like a, from an equity perspective, a a dominant shareholder with two lieutenants and then two junior lieutenants. We had five equity owners and it was like 60% of the equity was mine, 15% each in the hands of the two lieutenants and 5% in the junior lieutenants. And over time, um, you know, things evolved somewhat from there, but we didn't give out a lot more equity in the early days. We did some. Fa- we did a couple of grants of um, of Phantom when uh, Mark, the now CEO, joined as chief operating officer in 2011, and then the cap table stayed absolutely stable for you know eight and a half okay, years. Yeah, while, yeah, yeah, where we didn't do anything because we didn't know how to do it systematically. And mm-hmm. so, like somewhere in that period is when I started thinking about ESOP. Like 2016 is when I stepped down in the fall as as, as, as CEO. 2017, like. We announced it to the public, and um, you know, uh, and then so let's it talk was, about that. Let's, let's talk about that because I, I, you know, I just got done off a mini series talking about finding kind of the mindset of it, hiring a president, CEO, you know, comp plans, all that kind of stuff. So we spent a bunch of time on it last year, and it's it's just a hard topic for people. And like, why don't you just walk us through kind of like how that worked for you, just on whatever comes to mind. Well, like when we started the business, we didn't particularly want to start a professional services business. We thought we'd start it as a services business and ultimately pivot to product. And I'll tell you, 80% of agency owners I know had that initial vision. Okay, we'll start in the services grind and then we'll pivot to product because that's obviously better. And it's like clearly... Or, or, or in, in a, it, add this to you because I know this is part of your story, I believe too, is like the guy I talked to last week that was in one of our presentations. He's like, yeah, I've got like 5% equity in like 14 companies that I did stuff for free. <laughs> or pivot to investing, yes. The quote unquote investing. Uh, talk about negative sample selection bias. Um, people who are coming <laughs> to you with their early stage startup looking to give you equity for services are not the best startups in America. So I was often a distracted, like visionary, from the perspective of, of 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 steering this professional services firm. We didn't have ambition to be a large professional services firm, and so I always use the analogy of like, can you imagine trying to drive fast while you're constantly looking out the window, left and right, left and right? Oh, what's over there between that green grass? Oh, look at that barn over there. Oh, there's mountains in the distance over there. And so it's like 
either you have to go slow or everybody's going to get sick in your car or both. And, um, and, and so or a crash, potentially dead. Yeah, more yeah. Than or you crash, right? Exactly. And so you careen <laughs> into the ditch while you're looking at the cow over there. And so if I was, I was a, not a drunken founder, but sort of a drunken founder. Like I wasn't sure where we wanted to go. Um, and that reluctance, I think has sort of continued to manifest is like, I am a bit of an art of the start guy. I really like that early concept stage startup. You know, the big problem, the big idea, the initial team, the initial product, but the refinement, the lather, rinse, repeat over time, the building a team, HR policies, all those sorts of things as you scale, uh, they, they, there's, there's, there's entrepreneurs and there's operators. And, and some people are both, just like EOS says, there's visionaries, visionaries and integrators, and some people are both. Like, I'm clearly an entrepreneur and I'm clearly a visionary. And I so, think one of the, th- of the statements you said to me when I met you after the like it was like I, I actually I remember exactly where I was, Josh, and I was like, yeah, because I was talking through like, hey, like, what do you, what do you want? I was kind of just you know challenging some of your thoughts, and you're like, dude, I'm going to scale this professional services company. I'm just going to scale up the same problems. <laughs> it was like the, it was in some form or fashion of how you said that. Is that is that why yeah. you didn't want to scale to just a professional services firm, or was it not well, int- intellectually well, challenging for you, or what was the? I've always described. Well, I was always bored. Like I started the company when I was twenty one, and it was thirty five. Like it, it was, it had dominated my life. But you know, what the, I think what I probably said to you was that with professional services firm revenue scales linearly to headcount and hassles scale exponentially to headcount. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. yes. so they make a lot of sense when they're small, but when they're big, you really have to think about how do you counteract that exponential people scaling problem. And, and the U.S. military is the best example of this. They break it down into little chunks, right? And so there mm-hmm. are ways to build 500,000 person professional services firms. It just becomes an operating challenge. And a, like it's a, like a fractal a, all the way down into like, yeah. Exactly. Whether you do it with complete, like, like, you know, if you're teal and there's no hierarchy at all and everybody's self-managing or whatever, you have to break it into chunks and it becomes an operational challenge to be able to continue. And you get very little pricing. Um, uh, like you don't get that much pricing benefit from being larger. So there's just not that much of in the way of economies to scale in a professional services firm. There's some, but there's not nearly as much as say like in a SaaS product or, 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 or whatever. And so it, just these challenges, like the, the exciting stuff was really interesting, getting the culture set up, you know, learning about the people, doing this fun stuff when we were in our 20s. But as I got into my mid-30s, I was just like, I can't sell this because it's too weird. <laughs> I have too well, much wait, value. What's your definition of weird? Well, it just like culture-driven, very um, opinionated and strong-willed employee stakeholders at the table – talking about what we were going to do, not that profitable, you know, uh, curious about all sorts of adjacent things, intermingled investment assets with operating assets, all just all sorts of quintessential mistakes coupled with so this uniquely strong opinionated culture um, just made it a very challenging asset sell. And I remember very vividly having a conversation in August of 2016 with my um He's like sort of like functions as my older brother, Gary Zimmerman. And he said to me, Josh, you need to figure out how to be a capitalist in the context of your business. It doesn't come naturally to you, but you need to disconnect your time and your ownership. You need to figure out how to spend less time on the business while you maintain your ownership because there's some possible future where 
you achieve the scale or get the business tuned in a way that it's actually a valuable asset. So don't sell it now. Don't keep running it full time. How do you solve for that? And the answer was secession. I had a chief operating officer who, and Mark Rickmeyer, who by that point in time was for all intents and purposes, my co-CEO, but not in name. He didn't think of himself in that way, but there was enough. There was starting to be issues. Like he would tell a story about the why of something we were doing that would sound different to the employees than me. Can creates confusion. And mm-hmm. it, at a certain point, you know, to fully flourish in his next chapter, it was time for me to get out of his way. And, and it took some talking him into doing it. Being a CEO is not as much fun a job as a lot of people think it would be. And I think he could see that. But, you know, he's also an ambitious, smart, growth-oriented individual himself and, and, and really went and, uh, and, and, and jumped into it with both feet. And he's now reshaped the company. Like we had five years of working as CEO, COO together, mm-hmm. visionary integrator. Um, and he's, you know, he's actually one of those guys who can do visionary and integrator. Pretty rare in the EOS world mm-hmm. for that, but um, it's you. See, it's uh, it's the approach that you took, or the the circumstances were almost inverse for what I see a lot of. Um, a lot of egos that think that they're needed. No one else can do their job. You name the other kind of easy narrative that goes on is. What were you like? So that was a hard conversation that your mentor or whoever that was, their older brother kind of quasi older brother said, but like, what did you want? What, how did you, what was the carrot that was making that challenge with Mark worth it? Like what were you marching towards? Well, well, for what it's worth, like I, it wasn't actually a hard conversation with my, my, with my God brother. It was an easy one. It was an incredible relief. It was like the moment when Dan Wallace first shared the idea of a visionary and integrator. And I figured out that I wasn't just bad at being a business person. I was just a visionary trying to do a visionary and an integrator. And, it. and it was, it was an incredible catharsis to be like, Oh wait, there is a way forward that I don't have to destroy what it was like when I figured out about ESOP later on, I can, have my cake and eat it too. This, the legacy, the thing that is special that treats people like people and our clients like, like value uh, members of our team and, you know, engages with the, you know, the, the, the community around us and tries to do good in the world that doesn't have to be at odds with sort of creating value. And I think at the mm-hmm, end of the day, mm-hmm. that was the unique proposition of where we were trying to go. This people, this multi-stakeholder defined organization is very appealing for especially once it reached some scale, so there's actual money to pay people. Like it's not a bad gig to work at DXI. Now these days it's a very good gig. We haven't laid anybody off. So it's, so there wasn't a hard conversation with Mark then. How like what were what was gonna be in your mind your new role or the activities that you're gonna spend your time on? For me, like I think the conversation was calling a spade a spade. And for Mark, it was hard it to sort of accept the facts for being what they were. And but it wasn't me saying, Hey Mark, it's time for you to move on. It was me saying, hey, Mark, it's time for me to move on. Um, so instead of Mark sitting there being frustrated at, why won't yeah, Josh right. get out of my way? He keeps, like, I'm sure I clipped his wings unintentionally from time to time uh, when we were in CEO, COO mode. I'm still, I'm sure I still do it unintentionally once in a while with exec chair and CEO. But I think getting to clarity of responsibility and accountability was essential for his job satisfaction. It's, his job came both harder and more rewarding um, at the same time, both financially as well as 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 as, as sort of spiritually, and and so that's success. Like again, I don't know. It's weird. I struggle as a business person with like basic things, like you know, feeling like 
it's okay to make a lot of money or, you know, or not wanting, you know, like other sort of foundational things, taking credit for any of the success that I've had. I struggle with that. I have no why, struggle why it, whatsoever. Both those things, what are the struggles with both of those topics for you? You know, it's, it goes back to sort of my incredibly hippy dippy egalitarian roots, as well as my gen- like deep seated anxiety about the future of humanity. Like I think capitalism works well to in certain times and constrained spaces to allocate uh, scarce resources to the highest marginal uh, productivity. But I think the way capitalism is deployed, deployed right now is destroying humanity. Like, and so this philosophical context um, is, is, at, is present and it's at odds with like feeling good about succeeding within a system I think is morally bankrupt on the flip side. Like you think about taking credit for the, the success I've had, like I was shot out of a privilege cannon. That's I can now say that I know what that means. <laughs> like I am tall, white, lean, raised by two parents in a happy marriage in London, Ontario, Canada, got the best level education. I don't know if I said male, but that's clearly an issue too. Like I, I'm extroverted. I am high IQ. I, like there aren't very many things that could be added to the roster of things that I was born with or given to by my parents before that I was 10 years old. And so that's always actually been like a, what is, what of this is actually deviation from my launch trajectory versus just mm. me following the path that what of mm. this did I do versus what of this is circumstantial. That's always been like a definitional insecurity for me. Makes sense. Stepping aside when someone else is clearly able to do the job better, it's going to learn more, it's going to have more fun doing it, it's going to build a better future for this thing that I started. No concerns whatsoever with that. It's weird, right? Like I think a lot of people otherwise, like I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who just want to take credit for their like Ayn Randian success. I remember when Obama got just absolutely flamed for calling out business owners and saying, you know, that successful business you made, you didn't make that. And what he was trying to say was like, it requires like property rights and public education and cons- healthy consumers and all these sorts of things. This idea that entrepreneurs create jobs is complete cockamamie to me. Healthy consumers create jobs because they have that's where demand comes from, and we have a demand-led economic system. And 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 so like it 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 just doesn't make any sense to be uh, this narrative that so many entrepreneurs have about their own awesomeness and their own specialness it's it's hogwash like it's it's not and real that's, it's interesting taking this thread and then let's think about or i want to hear your thoughts on like how you are starting to analyze like as mark's now taking your position and you're now thinking about long term more for txi of like how do you actually monetize this without going against what you've just described to us as kind of your core values and maybe kind of two part of like one, maybe walk us through like why you maybe didn't see a way out. Like what were your options that you're exploring kind of the status quo and then why that was at odds and then how that kind of led you towards more of like the ESAP route. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were involved in that process um, and sort of came to the same conclusion I had come to in a much more systematic way, which was when you looked at our financials, when you looked at our book of business, when you looked at our cultural norms around transparency around um, employees having a voice in decision-making, you know, and any number of other factors, um, 
are, you know, more and more of our commitment to social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and some of these other um, things that we've now been able to name and understand how to invest in them and far from perfect, but way, way better than we were in the past. When we looked at how we would be valued conventionally by a strategic or a financial acquirer, um, well, there was always lots of inbound, unsolicited inbound interest in the business. As we made more and more noise, we got some really big flagship accounts, um, some celebrity type stuff as well. And But when I started to think about like the process by which we were going to have to go, like we didn't do a lot of big multi-year contracted revenue. It was a lot of project ongoing handshakey type stuff. It was well papered, but like loosely. And so we didn't have a collections issue because we always overserved the customer. But like trying to explain that to the 28 year old financial analyst who's working for the PE fund <laughs> who wants to put like a giant discount on near future revenues because they're not contracted. I understand what you're trying to do, bud, but like you have no clue how these sorts of businesses work. It's, 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 it's a, um, it's just like the how we would be valued and then what would happen to the business afterwards. Inevitably, we would be bolted into something bigger or part of a land and expand, buy and build, whatever you want to call it, strategy uh, in the PE world, or we would be acquired by a strategic. The only thing I ever really seriously considered was there was a couple of customers that I thought understood who mm. we were well enough that aqua hiring our team and dumping the clients might make some sense. But in the conventional sale to PE or sale to strategic, I could never see how I could actually get the transaction done. You know, we would start with, hey, we're going to pay you 7x EBITDA, or we're going to pay you $500,000 per employee, or we're going to pay whatever. And mm -hmm. by the time we got to the actual end of the deal with all the like discounts they would inevitably have applied as they diligenced and just sort of negotiated in bad faith, because I think that's what happens most of the time. And then all the subject to an earnout, yada, 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 you end up getting a lot less anyway. And you have no control to manage the narrative in the future. And again, in PE or in a strategic, who's they're just going to buy you and then you're going to get sold again. That's a guarantee. And so you mm -hmm. can vet the heck out of the person who's buying you now, but who's going to buy them mm -hmm. to subsume this business entirely to the whims of another choice maker is a decision. I am only willing to leave up to all of the employees collectively. So we've now put them in a place where that can be the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so we, it ultimately led us to the idea of like, we need to get out of this undemocratic, obsolete capital structure where a number of the largest equity holders were no longer working daily in the business and move to a capital structure that actually served the needs of the business and its other stakeholders, its clients, its employees, the community. And ESOP just, you know, it's, it's not a perfect structure. There's some really painful pieces of it, but ultimately per the, the sort of tax benefits provides enough grease in the gearbox to when you look at it net net for an organization like ours where we cared about the legacy not of like saying i'm so awesome i built this but like hey we collectively worked hard together to make something special that operates to its own rhythm and its own uh its own value system let's set this up to do our best job of preserving it like you know, who the heck knows what AI is going to do to professional services or, you know, technological change or the economy or this, that, and the other. I have no idea if we've built something that can last another 20 years, but I know for sure in 20 years, you wouldn't have a single bit of it visible elsewhere if we sold it to PE or to a strategic. It mm -hmm. would just disappear. 
So like one of the things, again, that I respect uh, an enormous amount about you is you thought through this diligently for a long time and like chewed on it and it, you didn't make any knee jerk reactions. And um, we don't, we don't have to go for the play by play, Josh, but I think it's uh, there's an important chapter to note that, you know, after my involvement with like, my old business, kind of like helping you think through this. And again, I don't want to overdo my part on that. Cause you were pretty clear, but you know, we got like somehow you got to the hump, going to do an ESOP clear on that route you went through a process to figure out is now the time you kind of put a pause on it and then you waited to go and then eventually do it. And here's kind of the wrapper I want, like for the listeners, I think it's important, dude, is like one of my beliefs and kind of the mantra that I'm just pounding, Josh is like, if you build a business that's ba- like intrinsic financial value is based on the needs of the main owners that are doing the primary work right now, you can almost pre-engineer your monetization at the dollar amount that you want, as long as your expectations of timeline and growth and everything that are kind of in line, but you, you put a pause and then you went back and then you did some things to get to where you wanted to go, which I think is super fascinating that you didn't just say, Oh, I can't do it right now. Pivot, actually sacrifice the things that you had mentioned that were important to you to get the number. So like you, you stayed the course, but it wasn't a clear, easy path right when you decided that you wanted to do it. Am I summing that up? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, we stayed the course in as much as, you know, ultimately we'd never optimized the business for uh, a financial return. And the way the ESOP legislation works is they have to basically buy the business on a multiple of your financial performance. So they can't assign a lot of value to the things that we had spent money investing in. So we had to prove that you could use the things that we had spent money investing in, like a loyal team, like a culture, like a market presence, like a track record, and, and tune that a bit for financial performance. And so, you know, we hired a, a key person around this time of deciding not to do these on the first time, a guy named Kelly Ewer, who had been the previous chief operating officer of ThoughtWorks before it was sold to private equity. And he's a businessman and he comes from Lexedra then to ThoughtWorks and has, you know, a strong accounting and finance background, understands a value-driven system and company, he came from ThoughtWorks, which is one of the most dogmatic professional services firms in the world, um, about certain topics. Uh, like knew the founder really well. They'd actually explored ESOP there, but it didn't work because they were too polynational to make it work. And, and he comes in and just more or less helps us with pricing. That's the, the most critical function. He's like, you're not pricing your services in a way where you're getting a fair share of the value you're creating for your clients. And if we figure out some pricing stuff here and a few other leaks that you've got in the way you're operating your financial model, this business can work a lot better. And, you know, there's a lot of people doing all sorts of things at the same time, but I do credit Kelly for the, the simplicity of, of his assessment and then his commitment to like working towards that goal, which ultimately allowed him to help get me the place where I need to be. It was, it was actually a really interesting thing. When we first met, like he, he came from work, so Mark knew him. And for me, stepping further and further back, it was great to have this really hardcore financial guy to pair up with Mark, who is not a really hardcore financial guy. Uh, but Kelly said, looked at me in the eye and said, so what do you want out of this? And I almost started to cry. It was so disarming. I was like, nobody, literally nobody's ever asked me that before. I'm always asking everybody else what they want. Um, and, and again, to sort of just feel like someone was going to help take, help this thing take care of me and the needs of the other long suffering owners who we'd had a great deal of fun, but they never really made much money on the business was was great and so you know we stopped we paused at the first process 
We didn't consummate it. We decided that we needed to show the employees we were really serious about becoming employee-owned. So we opened a couple of private placements to allow people to buy in conventionally. We gave them some borrowing power from the company. We gave them a discount of the, the valuation. And um, we also allowed people who were not accredited investors to buy in, which puts the company in some risk with the SEC. But on the flip side, our view was it's it's worse to say no for fear than to try this and fail. So ultimately, like that worked out well. Everybody um, who participated in those buy-in rounds now became a selling owner in the ESOP transaction. And so we went from seven shareholders to 25 shareholders before over two tranches of sale internal to the employees before going ESOP. And now the business is 100% owned by the ESOP trust. And everybody who works there is now a beneficial owner. And so it it was an intermediate step that we decided was a, a good way to at least show you're serious. On the flip side, like I got an email from one employee who happens to come from like a less privileged background than me after we consummated the ESOP transaction. And it said, I've been eligible to do the buy-in for two years. And I've seriously considered it both times. I believe in this company and really want to be a part of it. But my personal financial situation doesn't allow me to make this level of financial commitment. And I really hope that the that this ESOP thing, I hope and believe that this ESOP thing is going to help me start to build intergenerational wealth for my family. Like that, and that is a very real possibility. It is not a foregone conclusion. Those of us who sold the business get paid first. We, we're debt holders. We get paid out over time. But there is a very real possibility that this person who's been at the company for a while now will have been there from the beginning, will continue to work there for a while could see hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars of benefit from this in, in some point in the future. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm struck by the, you know, we did what we said we were going to do. Um, it wasn't easy. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't entirely altruistic. Um, Does it have to be though? I don't know. It depends on which part of me you ask, but no, I don't think so. I think if we're all just altruistic, we have all sorts of different problems. There's like, you have to have a mixture of, <laughs> yeah. of, of self-interest and, and collective interest in, 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 in operating any sort of set of system. I don't have a lot of guilt about how we ultimately went down with the transaction. Um, I will. And I want to talk about why. Of- cause like, cause like if you think about like one of your narratives that you're saying about like making a bunch of money, you know, in like, depending on how you make that money, I think is probably what, kind of what I heard of like, that's where you might be at odds with it. So explain like your feeling of making money from a transaction the way that you did. Like, how do you feel about it? Well, my our banker, so we hired Menke and Associates. Um, they did a great job of helping us sort of structure the trends and negotiate the transaction. And uh, the banker warned me that if we didn't have bank debt and have some money that we got paid at close, it would feel like nothing changed. And I can tell you that that's very much the feeling. Like, I know I don't own the business anymore, but since I haven't even received my first interest or principal payment, I, like nothing has changed. Um, <laughs> everything has changed. Um, we didn't sell off any risk. We didn't get any cash. We did, you know. So, you know, let's talk about why you did that is, too. Why you oh, didn't take like, for, for for us, it was a matter of keeping the transaction inexpensive and simple, and wanting and being like, well, why would we sell this off? We don't need the cash right now. We can clip these coupons ourselves, and uh, it just makes the transaction much simpler. In retrospect, I, I think I might have maybe we we discounted that too soon. Maybe we should have shopped for financing to see what we 
what was available and to just look at it because I do think there's some discipline that comes from that. But it's also like, do you really want to involve a bank in your transaction if you can avoid it? Like if you could buy a house cash, why would you, or seller financing, why would you involve a market planner? The long short is, you know, I don't think there's a right answer here and it's going to vary wildly for different people. It does feel a little bit less real perhaps, but no, I feel ultimately like I won't get paid out unless the business is successful going forward. Right. And so my incentives are highly aligned with the employees who want to grow the thing. And what's great is for every principal dollar paid, they now have $1 of unencumbered equity value in the business. And if the business grows in value while they're advertising down the loan, you get this potential for exponential uh, share price growth, which will really impact people's lives. And at the same time, like, getting the proceeds of the sale out, you know, into my name and allow me to diversify over the next, you know, five, seven, nine years, you know, it's, it's really good for me too. And for all the rest of the selling owners. And, um, and so, you know, I don't feel, I don't, I sometimes, you know, you can, cause some of these things like the allocations of how much I got versus how much Matt got, you know, those date back to like equity decisions we made two generations ago, like, is that all really fair? I don't know. That's where I think I have more struggles than the idea of like selling the business. It's, it. it is something of intrinsic value. We did take risk. We built it over a long period of time. Uh, mm-hmm. Did I do that much more, that much more value than Matt? I don't know. You know, we've all done well. And so, you know, here it is. You know, let's talk about the like, that was there's that wasn't very helpful. So, like, and in that, uh, that in between where you like kind of had that one, half start. And then you said, okay, let's take a pause. We, you waited a little while. I mean, you guys had some pretty significant growth there. I mean, there, there was some tailwinds from some of the things that happened over the f- few years, but what I, I've told the story and I want like in a concept wise, and what I've tried to always get across with some of your, your story, Josh, is that you guys had such a pop, but then there was like, Hey, is this really going to continue where it's truly like an intrinsic financial value that even though you guys had a couple additional tax returns, you were just proving the story that you were doing. Right. And then you got paid for the story that the whole group was going at. So like between like Kelly, kind of some new metrics that you guys were shooting for. I don't know. How did you word it? Like you were just, you were, you guys were focused. You were still growing, but you guys were not eating as much. You guys were conscious of the the lack of the bad things you were eating. However you were wording that, but like, yeah. but you guys did real significant value creation and a handful of years because of the work that you guys did. Right. And, and then it's, it was, you know, really a function of tuning more for profitability than for revenue. The fundamentals of the business, it's actually really hard to fudge revenue in the services business. Like either they paid you or they didn't. <laughs> but the profitability can be, can vary wildly, both in terms of the rate of profitability and like how much, like, how much of the true expense of operating the business is properly loaded on the financial statements, right? Like, you know, are there owner dominant owner expenses intermingled with it? Are they being tacitly undercompensated for the replacement costs of the work Market they're doing? For all everybody, these all stuff, yeah. and things that are all part of the nuance of valuation, which can be a real mess. But like, it actually turns out that like, we didn't grow the revenues that much. We grew them substantially, but like that followed a multi-decade pattern of revenue growth where were the, the real change was, was how much of it was dropping the bottom line. 
and where we went from like low for high single digit probability rates, six, seven, eight percent EBITDA to like 18, 19, 20, more industry, like the 20, 20, 20 uh, rule that a lot of people talk about in professional services is 20% revenue growth, 20% profitability, and under and roughly 20% employee turnover per year. And if you want to learn more about that, you can, Jay Schwan is doing a series of masterclasses on this that are going to be incredible, I'm sure. Only watch the first one, but uh, you can link to that in the show notes. It's, you know, we just, we put ourselves back onto the sort of mainstream curve, which made us look like we were supposed to look. And then when you go through your like valuation exercise, the business triples in value or whatever, fundamentally didn't change that much, but it changed a bit. But do you feel like you sacrificed any of the DNA, the culture DNA of what you wanted to keep intact? I think we made minor sacrifices, but we got gains that were non-monetary as well. Because at the end of the day, like it's very easy for employees to imagine their employer as being extremely stable. But if anything has, you know, again, we as humans don't like uncertainty. We are not capable of thinking about a range of possible outcomes. We think about things very discreetly. It's either is or it isn't. And so I think there were some employees who really appreciated the improvement in fiscal discipline. Because it meant that they, we have a lot of stark objectivists, a lot of software engineers, people like that, who actually do want to think about risk and uncertainty and whatnot. And so the idea that we were making the business more fiscally prudent was actually appealing to a certain set of employees. Other employees were like, we're really sort of sick of hearing about all this like money-making dimension. How are we going to change the world? Um <laughs> And some of those people are still around asking those same questions. And some people have self-selected out a little bit as we became slightly more commercial in our internal messaging, slightly more focused in our external messaging around, you know, uh, things. But like nothing has fundamentally changed, uh, except that I think we understand better the lens of the power structures in the business through, through a more modern view. And we're doing a much better job to be explicit about our decision-making and radiating information. We've always been transparent, but now we've gotten to be like, you know, any major decision will typically have some version of a notion page in our, in our internal knowledge management system. So when you want to go and look at like, why is this happening? Here it is. And then two years from now, the why of we us doing this is still persisted there in data. And you can go back and look and there's not, or no recasting the analysis from the future lens looking backwards. It's like, we did this and we were wildly wrong, or we did this and we were <laughs> totally right. Um, yeah. But again, that sort of thing that we're, we're, we're doing really is, I think, better than it was before. And that is a non-financial thing. That's continued investment in, in building the best possible culture at the same time as we've managed to tune the business to tri- almost triple profitability. So there's... You know, there was a Wall Street Journal article that Kelly circulated the other day. I was just thinking about it. like it's that you know, uh, new research on teams and connection and to work and commitment. You know, being socially connected, feeling trusted and supported by your colleagues is very valuable and important. But having a clear role and a clear goal is actually more valuable, mm-hmm. and uh, to to the function of a team and to the to the commitment people feel towards work. And so we've probably like more strongly invested in the former than the latter through much of the company's existence. 
where it's like making sure everybody feels connected to this group of human beings. And I think, you know, part of the professionalization of anything as it gets bigger is, you know, goals and roles, clearly defined, mm-hmm. layer that into this connection of humanity. And, and, and you can, you can probably have your cake and eat it too. So as we're kind of winding down here, then it's kind of the, that phrase that I, I think, you know, you've proven that the ESAP did that for you. And it, I kind of think about conscious capitalism is that way, honestly, Josh. And like, it, I'm curious, like how, why you would say ESAP, the ESAP structure did it for you. Cause like when I think about this and I say this in, uh, in my presentations that I grew up thinking it was like Milton Friedman greed at all costs is the only way to actually be wealthy and you know, free at some point. And if you wanted to change the world, you'd have to be a nonprofit and broke and set, you know, martyr martyrism. But like when I read that book, I was like, holy shit, they both connect. And like, you can build something of value and be taken care of and make an impact. And I'm curious, like, cause that kind of connected some things to me that were disconnected. I'm curious, like with that kind of thought process, how did the ESAP kind of thread that needle for you and why? Well, well to me, like I actually think it's ESOPs and selling your business 100% to its employees is a much stronger thing to do than becoming a B Corp or engaging in conscious capitalism or running holacracy. It's literally changing the fundamental structures of capitalism. Like, what would Marx say about the idea of putting, can a worker be exploited by the capitalist if the worker is the capitalist? Can an employee self-exploit? Well, yes, I think we've probably proven that people can self-exploit, but they're much less likely to do it to much less of an intense degree than if you you have it in a a third-party capital owner. And I think you see this, like, how do ESOPs perform when stuff gets, when the going is tough? In recessions, ESOPs lay off far, far fewer people. And this has been shown in data over and over again about the performance of these companies because they can accept lower profitability for the good of the collective over some period of time. Like, there has to be profitability in the long run, but nobody is beholden to quarterly earnings reports or shareholder sentiment or activist investors or anything like that. And I don't, you know, maybe that's good, virtuous. I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think a scenario where you've got like building for the long run, building for the people, you know, engineering our companies, our cities, our societies for the people is the best goal to have in, in mind when you're doing it. And the ESOP is the, is the one of the best available tools to do this in the U S and it's exciting to see that it started to make progress in other, other developed economies. Um, uh, I always used to joke when I was talking about ESOPs with the various people, anybody who'd listen basically is like, look, this is one of the few things that conservatives and progressives in America agree, agree upon. Conservatives love it because it's privatizing the safety net. It's like making retirement the responsibility of private enterprise. And uh, progressives love it because it's, it's you know, uh, it's democratizing and spreading the wealth. Uh, Without having to write a check. Like, and like what I think about it too. And like an additional layer to that too is like you took the original risk. So your time and opportunity cost was originally at risk for a longer period of time before. And you were ahead of it knowing when the dynamics were starting to become out of whack. And you're from what I'm gathering, I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but you were fine tuning the balance as you were growing. But like, so you're like going back to your point of like it being by, um, by, uh, bipartisan is the fact that like, 
you're getting rewarded for your risk that you took and then employees don't have to write a check. And then afterwards, all incentives are aligned. Right. Like it. Yeah. In, in, a, in a way that is not true after you sell to Zombocom. Like it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not the way it works. Like earnouts. Oh gosh, what a perversion of an incentive alignment structure. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, they're, the 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 employee's incentive is to grow the value of the company now the best way for them to grow the value of the company is to grow its enterprise value through revenue and ebitda growth and to generate cash flows to pay down the the debt and that's what i want too i've got some more coverage like you know i'm still a shareholder in some ways like it's it and i want to get the debt out like it's it's just it's just fantastic it this is the way like this is the best structure that i've seen to sell this kind of company it's not for every company it's not for uh you know every business owner but i you know i i think there's a lot to it and i think there's a big opportunity over the next you know 15 20 years is a lot of businesses are going to change hands for 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 boomers who want to buy off some of the guilt for not having done anything about climate change to maybe sell their businesses for a slight discount to, uh, to their employees, uh, to take them going forward. Sorry. So what are, what are the big, uh, I was going to say that. So what are the big, big topics that you're spending your time on now? Like what, what do you, besides managing a couple, uh, a couple people that are probably, you know, three feet and a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, the three foot eight one was particularly challenging to get back to school today after a break. Um, uh, yeah. The, so what I've been doing, I've been uh, getting back in shape. I've moved to the uh, interior of British Columbia where everybody is a super athlete and just going for a walk can be a death defying uh, undertaking. If you're not on your toes, there's um, you know, the process of, 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 of getting through the ESOP transaction just closed at the end of the year last year. Um, and then on, you know, also we moved our whole financial life north of the border across through all that. So that's been tying up a lot of my, my time that I'm not spending being exec chair of TXI. You know, I'm starting, I've sort of thought of myself as being on a bit of a sabbatical and I'm kind of emerging. You know, I've been thinking about ideas around urban mobility. I'm really obsessed with e-bikes. So I ride them. I think about them. I tinker with them. You know, I evangelize them. People keep calling me the e-evangelist. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been getting some skiing in, uh, and then, um, you know, also ESOPs and advocacy, you know, just before we talked, I was on the phone with someone like they're looking at ESOP legislation in Canada and it is like the crunch time to try to push through real ESOP legislation with similar tax benefits in Canada. I'm only just learning about this now, but like pretty fired up about this as an opportunity and a structure and uh, would love to see, you know, one of my two countries of, 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 of affiliation follow the other one uh, towards a path that I think is a, is a better way to do business uh, for a lot of companies. And, and I hope this movement will continue to grow. It's still pretty a niche thing, but uh, you know, I'm, so I'm I could see myself Josh, spending yeah. some time evangelizing this. We'll see. When you're at, when you're talking to them, um, the U S just passed, uh, they, they did some modifications on the 1042, kind of like that 1031, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. so, but they, they're, it's starting in 2024, I believe. 10% of the allocation can go towards the 1042, even for pass-throughs, so not just C-Corp, so they're open up to pass-throughs, but it's just 10%. 
if they did 1042s where every seller could defer their taxes and put them into the stock market and keep the money in the market, I'd see, I think you'd see a flood of ESOPs that you would never know what to do with. The 1042 man through all entities, get it passed. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how hard I'm going to be working on, on, on us tax policy at this point. No, 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 no. For um, Canada. Like what I'm saying is like when you're involved, Canada. like if, yeah. Cause like, no, no, no. The U S is like, this will slowly happen over years. But like, if you're right. on the crunch time, man, 1042 is for all yeah, pastor yeah. entities. 1042 um, is for all pastor entities. But it, you know, there it's, um, it's definitely like a little bit different here. And mentalities about certain aspects are, are, are distinctly different. It's a different country, but I think it's interesting. I was, you know, uh, I'm one of the few people who lives in Canada who is Canadian born who sold uh, the ESOP in, in the States and they're thinking about doing it here. And there's, there's a 40 million person economy. It's not, it's not small. And there's a lot of companies that might like that structure. So, you know, we'll see. I, I could see spending some time on that. I don't know. I'm also just a, interesting projects. Um, I am young enough that I should probably be doing more professional things at some point in my life. And so I'll probably at some point update my LinkedIn to say, I'm interested in projects or something of the sort and watch the deluge of fascinating <laughs> values aligned, highly remunerated. Angel investor ready for life. some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like pitch me on stuff. No, no thank you. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, skiing. I know you're going to be doing some of that. Yeah. All right, man. As we're as we're wrapping up here, uh, the best place to get you know, I know you, I know you know where two questions are coming, but the best place to get in touch with you uh, if people do want to reach out. Uh, yeah, well, you can find uh, the firm that I founded, txidigital.com. Um, that's letter txidigital.com, and you know me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm one of the Josh Goldens out there. Uh, I'm I'm likely findable. Um, and if you are a highly qualified listener, um, you can email Ryan and ask for a direct. Uh, direct <laughs> that was a nice deflection, man. Like, and by the way, with the LinkedIn, I haven't updated for five years. You can go ping no, that too. <laughs> Just <It's> kidding. <laughs> uh, all right, man. What's uh, what's the word intentional mean for you, Josh? Well, this one I was prepared. I, I listened to your episodes because I find it so amusing to just pipe my friend's voice into my podcast half from time to time. But, but for me, it's 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 being mindful of what you're doing, why you're doing it, while you're in the middle of doing it. So it's 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 being aware of the what and why. Why am I talking? Why am I investing? Why am I eating? Why am I why? running? What am I doing right now? It's, uh, it, I, I really think question. this intentionality concept is like deeply Eastern. And uh, if you disappeared into the mountains of Tibet to become a monk, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. <laughs> uh, I was that freaking poor. I was the kid for those poor teachers, man. I was talking uh, to people at the presentations I did last week. I'm like, everything you're seeing a result, I didn't make any of this up. I just wouldn't shut the hell up. And I just kept asking why. And no one's answers made any fucking sense. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, I got to keep asking until it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right, Josh, man. I uh, am so honored and pleased that we finally got to have this conversation. It's been really fun to watch uh, your journey over the years, man. And you should be proud. So thanks so much for coming on, man. Well, thank you for having me. We'll talk soon. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're still with me here, I wanted to just relay how much I want that level of clarity for you listening in. 
I don't care what outcome you want. As far as what exit you want, what is the valuation that you want, whether you want to suck more cash out of the company or you want to reinvest more, I really don't care. All I want for everybody listening in is that what you're doing is getting you in line and on track to where you want to go. Hopefully, it's a target equity valuation that's reasonable that you can fund that growth. You can then take out whatever distributions you want that are aligned towards that. You're paying your taxes and you know that all your energy, time and capital are worth it at the end of the day and that you have the choices that you want. And I think the big takeaway is Josh was clear. He knew what he wanted. You could tell he's got a, a lot of opinions and they were important. his opinions are important to him. So he in- integrated those into his plan. And regardless of what your opinions are, put those into your plan so your expectations for what you can do with your company and what you will achieve over time are realistic and you have the highest probability of getting that outcome. If you want to increase that confidence, go check out the boot camp, the Intentional Growth Boot Camp. We spend two days diving into this and we use Summit and uh, Jordan, 10 million revenue, million dollars in EBITDA, case studies to highlight the five principles, dozens of exercises, lots of conversations. I think it's a blast. And if you need any conversations that with, that with people that have been to the boot camp, feel free to reach out. We'd have happy to put you in touch with someone. Otherwise, go to the website, check out the curriculum, watch some of the videos. Feel free to reach out if you got any questions. We've already got people registering and we cap out around 20 and it's at Rollins College in Orlando on May 11th and 12th. So I would just say thanks everybody for tuning in. Don't forget to tune in to next week where I've got John Walker from Prairie Capital Advisors where we're going to be talking about corporate divestitures and why big corporations will sell their entities and what that might mean for middle market entrepreneurs. And I just think this whole world of M&A from the bigger corporate side and how corporate divestitures work is a great view into a world that a lot of privately held business owners do not see. So be excited for that one. And I appreciate everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week.